another edition of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. I'm Craig. And today we are mourning the death of Angus Scrim, a horror icon who died at the tender age of 89. Yeah, it's it's sad. I uh, I read about his passing uh, earlier on this week, and of course I immediately texted Todd because he would have been the only one of my friends who would have really known who I was talking about or cared. There's so few people who can appreciate this. Right. I, I, I just said, oh no, Angus Scrim died and uh, he knew exactly what I was talking about as I knew he would and we decided that we would uh, do a little tribute, a little homage and uh, watch Phantasm this week. That is correct. You know, Angus Scrim came from not far from us in Kansas City, Kansas. We're in Missouri, but not far from Kansas City. His birth name was Lawrence Rory Guy. Very interesting. I did not know that at all. <laughs> Which is almost an odd enough you know, name. He went by Rory Guy, I think, most of the time. Uh-huh. And then he took the name Angus Scrim as sort of a stage name. Do you have any idea where that came from? No, or? I don't. That's a good question. But, you know, if he's from Kansas, the word Angus, you oh, know. True, <laughs> true. It, it, oh, it just sounds like a creepy name, though. And, and it looks like, he looks like an Angus. He does. He's known for being really tall. He's actually six foot four, which is pretty tall. Only about an inch taller than me, not as tall as he looks in the movies, but of course they built that up. For right, them. right. I mean, this is, he's done other work, but this is kind of what he's iconic for, and his character is just known as the tall man, and he's just kind of this scary, imposing figure. Uh, like you said, he was, what, 6'3", 6'4"? 6'4", yeah. Um, but in the film, uh, they put him in three-inch platform shoes. They put him in uh, ill-fitting suits that were too small for him to make him appear larger than life. And in at least one scene where he's standing next to another character, I know they had him standing on an apple crate to make him look more imposing. So there's a little bit of movie magic going on there. But he was a tall guy, uh, and he definitely had a very... Uh, unique and and spooky look about him. Yeah, and it's um it's interesting because it borders the line between really creep genuinely creepy and kind of mugging. Don't yeah, a little feel? bit. A little bit. It's it's if he had been playing a more serious character, let's put it that way. He's iconic as this character, the way that he played him as a sort of mugging uh, what really turns out to be, spoiler alert, a- an alien. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can get away with a lot when you're an alien in a movie, you know? Right, and sure. Y- your facial expressions can be a little over the top, and he's kind of known for that. I know that there's a friend of mine and I who, you know, we watched Phantasm a long time ago when we were in high school, and uh, we it's kind of one of our inside jokes to every now and then turn to each other and go, Boy! (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So I was waiting for that. I I haven't seen this movie in a long time. Me either. Uh, Like 15 years. This is, and I've only seen it that one time. This is one of those movies, though, that I remember from a kid. Now, I've talked about this probably a a bunch of times uh, on the podcast already, but there's just something about when we were kids going to the video store that uh, kids today will never know. Oh, Um, it's so sad. (laughs) And, you know, and, and when I was a kid, I just remember my favorite of course, place to walk around was the horror section. And just the video covers were always so eye-catching. And this one is just implanted concrete in my mind. I mean, I, I remember it vividly uh, with uh, Angus Scrim on, on the cover uh, and the the silver spheres that are also iconic. and That kind um, of white and deep saturated red. Yeah. Just sort of a white and red look. and Yeah, and I mean, it was artistically done. And, I, I you know, kids today can scroll through Netflix and see, you know, some artwork for the films, but it's just not the same. It seems like a lot of care used to go into that, and I imagine that was probably because they were trying to grab your eye, so you'd you'd pick it up off the shelf and take it home. I I don't know. This came out in 79, uh, which was the year I was born, Um, (laughs) so I guess maybe I was just too young to see it at the time. My folks were pretty liberal in letting me watch what I want to watch, but... As eye-catching as that was, I didn't see it until I was in college. Oh, yeah? And, yeah, I, I uh, moved um, to a different city to do my internship uh, right out of college. And uh, I didn't have cable. I was living alone. It was the first time I'd ever lived alone. So my mom bought me a $150 gift card to Movie Gallery. And every night I would go to Movie Gallery and pick out a movie, usually a horror film. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was then that I first saw this movie. And I watched them all. Like, just oh, did inter- you? Yeah, uh, all, all four of them uh, right in a row. And I, I, I really liked them. I loved them. So I was a, it's, it's a sad occasion to, to return to it now. But I was excited to, uh, to watch again. That's funny, you know, when I, I was born in 78, so only a year older than you, 
And my friends and I in high school would do stupid movie night where we would get together and we would usually go to the horror section because we were all kind of into that. But it's funny that you mention it. The horror section in the video store was by far the most interesting. Oh, yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Those covers really sold the movie and they had to sell the movie because some of the stuff in there was just total and utter garbage but you'd be so entranced by the covers absolutely and phantasm being one of those that we knew was an iconic horror film uh, we obviously we saw it we saw the second one i haven't seen anything since the second one but i know that my friend that i referred to earlier dakota my buddy and i we definitely saw phantasm one and two together and it was really hard for me to be uh objective watching this film just because I have so many good memories wrapped up in it. You know, it's one of those movies that when I first saw it, I'd really never seen anything like it. Yeah. It's not like other movies. It it doesn't make sense. No. But it, <laughs> but it also, it's fine that it doesn't make right. sense. It, it's got this dreamlike, surreal quality that shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's so funny. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth. There are so many things about this movie that shouldn't work. And for some reason, they do. I mean, it's it's an entertaining film throughout. You know, the acting is a little subpar, maybe. Oh, yeah, just um, to say yeah. you're being too kind. <laughs> I, well, and that's the thing. Like, it was hard for me to be objective, too, because I, I have such fond memories of it, and I, I just kind of wouldn't let myself be too critical in watching it. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's some... The cinematography, you know, it shows its age. I mean, it's definitely entrenched in, in the 70s. It's a little grainy, um, a little dark, dark in yeah. places. Which is good, actually. I right. like the darkness, but yeah. It's... All of those things, and I'm sure we'll hit on more of them. I just didn't care. Like, I, I was just... You know, I... <laughs> I, I'm, I was in it for the ride, and uh, it's it's a good ride. And, and like you said, I think that what I appreciate most about this movie and the whole franchise is that uh, it's completely unique and original. There's no other movie like it. It's not really borrowing or stealing from anything, and nothing has really... I, I'm sure people have been influenced, but you've never seen kind of a copycat movie. It's it's bizarre, it's unique, and uh, for that, I think it, it deserves some credit. Yeah, a lot of creativity, born probably out of the production process. I was doing some reading up on this. Don Coscarelli, the director, uh, who's since gone on to do the other Phantasm mm-hmm. movies, as well as a few other films mm-hmm. that some of them have been pretty pr- critically acclaimed, but he's never really broken through as a mainstream right. director. Uh, he had done a couple movies before this. None of them really did very well. In fact, the one before this, I think, was called uh, Jim the World's Greatest. I, yeah. I have no idea what it's about. I don't but it either. Was, must have been a comedy or a drama, and Angus Grimm was actually in that. That was his first time working with him. Yeah, several of the actors had worked with him uh, previously, mm. the, the principal actors. In fact, I think most of the they principal actors friends, had. They were all friends, people he knew. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just was, was decided, you know, horror movies seem to sell. He was inspired by Suspiria, which uh-huh. had come out around that time. And you can definitely see some influence there. I was definitely, you know, uh, there's one scene in particular, the first scene where uh, the metallic orbs appear and the first guy that's uh, impaled by the orbs, the blood comes shooting out and it's that bright, bright yes. red um, that's really typical of Suspiria and those other types yeah, of Yeah, the very saturated colors, right. mm-hmm. the very over-the-top thing, yeah. Um, the music, especially. Yeah. And uh, to me... The music makes this film. It's great. It's so atmospheric. It almost does as much for the storytelling as the acting or the dialogue. Oh, honestly, I was just thinking about that. About halfway through the movie, I was like, if you were to strip the movie out of the the music out of this scene, for example, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have the same effect. Right. And, And normally, that would be a criticism. A lot of times, if the music is sort of telling you how to feel or is trying to push your emotions... You spot it a mile away, you sort of sniff a rat, and and you don't like it. But in this movie, it really does drive it, and it makes scenes that would otherwise be fairly pedestrian really creepy, and it just adds to that surreal quality. Absolutely. It's very much a part of the narrative, and it it doesn't in any way, like you said, pull you out. And I think part of that is because it's pretty consistent. I mean, there's not very many scenes in this film that aren't underscored with something. That's true. I mean, there are a few. um... To the point where, if there's a scene without music... You kind of notice right. it, and it and it has its own effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good that way, and it and it's very reminiscent of uh, the music in Suspiria and a lot of Dario Argento's mm-hmm. films um, when he used Goblin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a movie that he did. I think it's called Phenomenon, yeah, yeah. and that 
it's very reminiscent of this score, and supposedly Coscarelli himself admitted that the score that Goblin did for Suspiria heavily influenced what he did for this film. Interesting. Uh, now, I don't think he composed the music for this film, but he pretty much did everything, everything else. Everything else, yeah, yeah. Wrote, directed, produced. He was inspired uh, by a dream that he had, I think, when he was a kid, but regardless, he, he dreamed that he was in this big marble hallway being pursued by some kind of force and and there were these chrome orbs that were were being shot out of some sort of instrument and were chasing him and obviously you know that features heavily in the movie and uh, it's cool it's really cool <laughs> part of that uniqueness yeah. uh, that you've never seen anything like it before right but for me it's so iconic you know i i see that you see that orb anywhere, anything that's even reminiscent, and it immediately takes you here. It's it's not generic at all. Oh, no. <clears throat> well, the movie starts out in a strange place. Uh, there's this sort of... It almost feels like, to me, crammed-in sex scene. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like one of those where the distributor said, you got to have some boobs in here. Yeah, right. And so you slap something together last minute, throw it together. Although it turns out to be pretty central to the plot where there's a guy, his name is Tommy, and uh-huh. we don't know that at the time, but he's basically having sex with this woman in the cemetery, mm-hmm. and she stabs him, Right, and you see this quick flash uh, where it's showing a close-up of the woman's face, but then it's like a man's face, and then it's a woman's face again, and then it goes immediately, as a lot of these scenes do, just immediately goes to something different. Right. Now, now, again, if I was being critical, which I'm not going to be, that oh, you would got, be you can be critical. That would be one of the things. <laughs> that would be one of the things that I would say is maybe a kind of a weakness of this movie is the editing. It, it, it jumps from scene to scene, and there's not a lot of explanation of what happens in the interim. Yeah, um, and I am. 90% positive that that's because the original cut of this movie was almost four hours long. Yeah, it was insane. Yeah, and uh, Coscarelli, you know, he didn't even need anybody to tell him that's too long. You know, <laughs> he, he realized that that was going to be way too long to hold uh, people's attention. So he cut it down to, what, like an hour 40-something? Yeah. And uh, you can kind of tell. You can kind of tell that there are bits and pieces missing. You they can. found some of that footage later, and actually I, I think they used some of it and used the narrative part of it to inform the fourth movie. But some of it was lost, but not not all of it. But uh, you, can, you can tell. That part you can tell. You can, and I don't think it entirely works out of the film's favor. I, I think that that's part of the charm of the movie, and it adds to that surreal quality, especially so that the ending doesn't seem as abrupt as it would otherwise. Mm-hmm. The ending, and we're going to get to it later, but right. the ending does seem like, whoa, where did we, how did we get here? Right. But because you're hit with that throughout the film, like, whoa, how did we get here? What, what, okay, that was cool, that was abrupt. You're set up for it, and it just, to me, it adds to that surreal quality. I agree. But what it does strip away, and my understanding is there was a lot more character development uh, in the original cut, and a lot of that got cut out. Right. And that is what I would say is one of the, many admittedly weaknesses of this film is that it's straight story it is bare minimum here are actions that are happening and here are the characters reactions to them you don't get a strong sense of who these people are right and their backstory and their relationships with each other except for the fact that oh these two are brothers right and oh these two are friends right you know yeah, there's at one point in the movie, um, the older brother, uh, Jody, sends the younger brother, Mike, he says, take him to Sally's at the antique store. And and so <laughs> like, the, the kid goes and there's Sally and Sally apparently has a sister, Susie, and there's there's kind of a, a scene with them, but we have no idea who they are. <laughs> um, Susie and Sally. <laughs> right. And, and then they kind of disappear and then it's kind of just explained, oh yeah, we found them and they got away. I mean, you get the sense that you're missing <laughs> big parts of the story. There's one scene where the three main guys, Mike, Jody, and Reggie, um, all come back. I couldn't even tell really whose house it was, but they all converge at somebody's house, and uh, this lady, I guess she's supposed to be a, a housekeeper or something, just pops out of nowhere. Hey! You boys back yet? Yeah? Jesus Christ, no. Myrtle. No. You almost gave me a coronary. And that's the only time you ever see her. I have no idea who she is. I have no idea why she was in their house. He's like, oh, Myrtle, you scared me. Yeah. And we're like, who the heck's Myrtle? <laughs> and 
You never know. No, you never see it's okay again. because uh, you, you kind of forgive it because it keeps the pacing going. Mm. I mean, there aren't any lulls in this movie. I mean, it keeps going. The action, although the the dots don't always seem to connect exactly, we keep moving. Yeah, throughout, and, and that's fine. And, and it's almost humorously so. Right. You know, in the beginning, after that that scene, the very next shot is a, a shot of the house, which you said is the house from from burnt offerings, burnt yeah. offerings, which is standing in for a like a funeral home in this movie right mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's it's a, a really cool looking house but you're right we jump right to the tommy's funeral and that's where we're introduced to really our main characters jody who it appears i mean there's a little bit of dialogue that suggests that jody and reggie who is a bald guy who drives an ice cream truck and that's kind of the yeah. extent of his characterization <laughs> but uh jody and reggie and uh tommy did you say his name was tommy was the one who died yeah who want, it, it, i think they were like buddies like they were like a trio oh it's hilarious it's it's like a guy who just got out of film school writing a script who's just been told be economical in your screenplay because you get the shot of the house and then reggie pops into frame and goes jody hi reg how's it going Tommy's gone. It's, uh, it's a hell of a way to end a trio. <laughs> it's hard to believe. I killed himself. Hey, I, uh, I'm gonna go visit somebody. Uh, I'll catch you inside. Yeah. <laughs> and they leave but at the same time well we might as well get along with the plot <laughs> sure right let's let's keep moving and it's bizarre because then uh reggie just starts exploring the mausoleum it's like he's going for the funeral but he decides to pop into the funeral home which is also a mausoleum i think that's jody right isn't it jody, jody yeah. yeah jody's the one and he goes into this mausoleum. He had also said something, uh, Reggie had said something to to him, it's probably best that you didn't bring your little brother. And mm. the little brother is Mike. Jody says, yeah, when we had our parents' funeral uh, here just a little while ago, it really kind of freaked him out, so I figured I better send him, I, I better not let him come. That's right. So we don't know what happened to their parents, but they're dead, apparently. And so Jody goes in, and he's kind of looking around, and we were commenting on this mausoleum. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's kind of... Uh, impressive in the way that it's set up. I mean, it's made to look larger than life. I I kept thinking, where in this house is this mausoleum located? It, the, the exterior doesn't match the interior no. at all. No, and it, it, it's it's like this huge, you know, floor-to-ceiling marble, white marble mausoleum, which, you know, if, if, if you read up on it. Yeah, there's something off about it. When you look at the marble, you're like... it. I don't know why it looks so fake, but it just, it's so patterned and fake. And yeah. You were telling me. It beca- it's because, I mean, they just constructed the set out of plywood and covered it in contact paper. <laughs> you know, like people in the 70s would have like lined their counters with or whatever, yeah, faux yeah. marble. Uh, and it's it's funny because we were talking about it. It's J.J. Abrams, right? Who is yes. planning on doing a 4K restoration of this. And I wonder how that'll play out because there are some of those, you know, you that... You don't want to see that right, kind of detail, right? right? I'm I'm afraid it'll make it look cheaper than it is and it's already cheap but yeah. but they do a good you know you can you can work with cheap and they work with it here well you know that's actually the criticism i had of the evil dead do you own the evil dead dvd oh the yeah remastered one i thought it lost a little bit by remastering it in dvd and making bright all of the areas that previously in my old dirty grungy vhs copies right. were so dark and dingy and hard to make out I felt like it cleaned up a movie that didn't really benefit from being cleaned up. Right. And I would worry that a 4K restoration of this film would do the same thing. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I will. I'll see. I'll, I'll want to watch it. I will, yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting just to see some how some of these special effects hold up. Right. <laughs> so, you're right. Jody is in there, and uh, I didn't notice it the first time around, but he kneels down and, and looks at uh, the spot where his, his dad is uh, there in that moment. And then he stands up, and I think... Somebody puts a hand on his shoulder, and he turns around, and it's Angus Scrim, the yeah. tall man, looking, um, you know, sinister from very the sinister. And he he only has probably like three or four lines in the whole movie. It's very true. And he says something like, "The funeral is about to begin, sir." 
With that eyebrow raise. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the funeral happens. Um, meanwhile, Mike is hiding out in the cemetery watching from afar. As it turns out, it seems like Mike is keeping a really close eye on Jody because he's afraid Jody's going to take off uh, and, and leave him behind. So he sees part of the funeral, uh, but then after everybody else has left, he's still lingering around and... Um, Tommy's coffin, you know, the pallbearers had had delivered it to the uh, gravesite, but after everybody goes, this tall guy returns with uh, the hearse and by himself picks up this huge coffin and uh, loads it back in the hearse. The hearse, yeah, <clears throat> which is which is odd. And uh, so um, Mike's a little spooked out, so he goes to his friendly neighborhood. Psychic, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the weirdest things. It's it's again I, emblematic of the strange cuts in this film, and the strange way that the story progresses is that he's weirded out by it. So the next shot is him sort of sauntering down a road, and there's a sign with the hand on it, you know, that mm-hmm, means psychic. Mm-hmm. And he walks in the house, and this is a very bizarre scene. And this is, again, the scene that's setting you up that this is just going to be a bizarre movie. Right. There's a woman at the door, a girl, and she says, and she's about his age. And Seemingly, says, yeah. Says, Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, is your grandmother home? Sure, come in. And, by the way, her acting is maybe the worst of all of them. <laughs> and he sits down, and it's this room that's just filled with candles like it's always filled with candles. Right. And she wheels out this woman who must be blind because she has these the dark... blackout shades, right? Mm-hmm. And the and she sits down next to her. She says, uh, "Tell grandmother what you want to say." Yeah, what's on your mind? What's bothering you? And he starts in with a little bit of exposition, which is basically, "I'm worried that uh, it's about Jody again." So we know that he's been there multiple mm-hmm. times and that Jody is a topic. And I'm worried that he's going to leave me. And we get this flashback sequence, and it's it's neat the way it's edited because we don't even realize that it's a flashback sequence when it's happening. At least I didn't. I thought maybe it was cutting from the reading until, you know, Mm -hmm. to the next day. And it's just this moment where they drive the car in and Jody gets out and he says, oh, they they pop the hood and Jody says, oh, I think it's the such and such. And he gets under the car and starts to fix it. And then some other guy pulls up who's clearly a a friend. I'm sorry, Red. uh, Michael is the one who fixes it. Another guy pulls up and gets out of the car and says, oh, hey, Jody, how you doing? And it's like a buddy of his. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I'm sorry to hear about, you know, your your friend, Tommy. They're having this conversation as though Reggie's not, you know, 12 feet away from them under the car. And he's talking about Reggie. And he's, he, uh, Mike, Mike. The, Mike, the thank you. I'm going to get this <laughs> totally messed up. Reg- Names are hard. That's right. <laughs> Reggie's the bald ice cream guy. You're right. All right, Jody and this other friend are talking about the the kid Mike, and they're basically saying, uh, "Well, I I uh, I'm worried about him. I'm thinking about uh, sending him away somewhere." So you can kind of see that Michael's feelings are not unwarranted. Right. It's just really neat the way that that's edited together, where it goes from their conversation into a voiceover. Into another section where Jody is like driving, riding his bike down the street, and And Michael is chasing chasing after him. It's interesting. This very artistic moment where we get the sense all in one scene that is a flashback uh, that Michael is worried about Jody leaving him. And then you get that visual of him constantly chasing him around Mm -hmm. and, and chasing him down the street as though he's leaving him. And then it cuts immediately back to. The psychic, and you're suddenly taken out of it, like, oh yeah, that's right, we were in the psychic, and and that must have been a flashback. Well, and it felt really economical. Um, like they wanted to get that little bit of exposition in, and and they don't get much in, but I'm glad that they did there because then you really kind of get a sense of what the relationship is between these two brothers, and that's kind of important. If there's going to be, you know, if there's any important relationship uh, in the story, I mean, the friendship with Reggie is kind of central too, but really, um, it's Jody and Mike looking out for each other, and yes. I thought that scene did a good job of establishing that yeah it's an understated moment in a movie that doesn't have many understated moments right but anyway that scene wraps up in a very strange way and that the girl says uh grandmother wants you it's like she's she can channel grandmother yeah grandmother doesn't talk yeah the other girl talks for her 
And she says, Grandmother wants you to play a little game. And suddenly a box just magically appears on the table. Mm -hmm. Literally magically appears on the table in front of him. And she says, put your hand in the box. And so he puts his hand in the box. And instantly, it's like the box is grabbing onto him and it hurts. And he's trying to yank his hand out. Hey, this thing really hurts. Don't fear, Michael. I can't get my hand out. Don't fear. Give me back my hand. Don't fear. It was simply reflection. Fear is the killer. That's what grandmother wants you to learn. The idea being, I guess, he loses his fear, and so he's able to pull his hand out of the box, and that's the lesson that he learns. Which comes back around in the end. I mean, it's not really all that important or significant, but it does come back around in the end, and it kind of helps him uh, uh, to escape uh, in the end. But it is, it's kind of an odd scene. And that's one of the things about this movie is you never really know what to expect. There are so many different elements of it. Yeah. Um, A gypsy woman who can make things magically appear and disappear. You know, what's that all about? It's odd because it seems to be setting up that they live in this sort of magical world, but they don't. Right. Um... But he doesn't seem to be terribly surprised at all of this happening. It's like maybe, well, it's a little unusual, but not unlike many of my other previous sessions or something. I guess. (laughs) Well, so the young girl tells Mike, um, you don't have to worry about the Jody thing. We told you that before. The Jody thing's going to be fine. If he leaves, he'll take you with him. Mm. But then he says, well, there's this other weird thing that happened. And he explains what happened at the cemetery and seeing the tall man. And that's when they do the test thing. Oh, that's right. And that's kind of of it. That's the end of the session. But after, I think the next scene is the young girl going to the mausoleum. Liam. Hmm. I guess she's just checking things out. That was strange. Like, it was kind of weird. Like she's checking up on a story? Or, yeah, I, or... I guess. And so she, she goes in there and she walks through the place that we've already seen, the big marble place. But at the end of one of the corridors in that marble place is this like wooden door. And she opens it and this blaring white light shines out on her. And then it cuts to the outside of the house and you hear a scream. And so you know that there's something sinister. Not that we didn't already, but obviously there's something sinister going on there. But we really have no idea what it is. And that's another one of those things that just kind of goes unexplained. You know, we we don't know what happened to that girl. At the end, when, like I said before, uh, Reggie, at at some point, towards the end, they find themselves back in there. And he says, oh, I found a bunch of girls. They were fine, but they were scared. So I just let them go. Like, I I (laughs) felt like that's kind of what I felt like was being suggested. I don't know. There are lots of loose ends. And normally loose ends really bother me. But I just... I, I refuse to allow them to bother me here because the storytelling is so fun. Yeah, <clears throat> you, you almost just have to dismiss that right. uh, as a and, and wonder if it was a dream sequence at times. And mm-hmm. who knows? It could very well. You right. could explain it that way. Uh, it's interesting, but it does set up that door, and that's one thing this movie does at least do a very good job at, and that is they are setting up everything. Very little of this film comes at you that has not been forecast previously, right? Right. Because I believe the next scene after this is just Jody hanging out on at his... At, at a, oh, you're right, you're on right. On their porch, right. right? And he's playing on electric guitar. And this is when we first... Well, when we see what Reggie does. When Reggie drives a ice cream truck, uh-huh. basically. And he pulls up, and he sits down, and he starts to sit down and jam with Jody on their front porch and they actually are both playing yeah. I mean, that's really quite impressive yeah, they sing a little tune one of them wrote that <laughs> I don't know which one but one of them wrote that little ditty I guess that's what you do when you're writing around the people that yeah. you know right uh, and he, they play their tune and it's kind of a cute moment it establishes them as friends it's something they do it might be the most character development you get out of this film it felt very natural you got the sense that those actors probably sat around on set and yeah. jammed uh, together but this is familiar and at the end he pulls out a tune fork you know hits it across his hand and then puts it against the guitar and you hear the hum and it's interesting how the camera just zooms in on that as though it's significant Mm -hmm. and it is it is eventually it is um and it's just one of those things that again this movie really sets up and forecasts things for you in advance and for all the faults of the screenplay and the writing and the dialogue at least those aspects of it are pretty darn solid nothing ever really comes at you like, except for the woman, 
<laughs> in the house. Right. Nothing else really ever comes at you where you go, where the heck did that come right, from? Right, right. As bizarre as it may be, they're ties. And that's one of the things, when I watched this whole series, the ones that have been released so far, that was one of the things that I was impressed with. They really maintain a continuity throughout really? the whole series. And they keep the same actors throughout the series, except for part two. Now, I guess that um, this, I don't know how the film did at the box office originally, mm-hmm. but it established, you know, a strong cult following so that uh, 10 years, it was 10 years after the first one was released that the sequel came out. And it got, I think, you know, studio backing and they were given a budget and whatnot. But what comes with that, of course, is then studio interference. And um, the studio did not want to recast either Mike or Reggie. And Coscarelli fought for it. And the only compromise that they would come to is they they demanded that he make them both audition. And then once they had both auditioned and he still wanted to cast them both, they said, you can't. You can't cast both. If you if you have to keep one, you can keep one. Really? Um, and so he, they, he kept the actor that played Reggie and the kid that played Mike was recast with a, a more stereotypically Hollywood kind of good-looking guy. Um, was Jody even in the second one? I don't remember I don't if Jody is was. in the second one or not. At least the same actor's not in that second one. Right. He does, however, pop up uh, at some point again in the franchise. I don't remember when. But Maybe when by he, the third. When he does pop up again, I do believe it is the same actor. And I think... Sally, who we don't see really anything of in <laughs> you this movie. You can see the back of her head most right. of the time. I, I think she she comes back and, and plays more of a key role. Um, but then for, well, and so the actor who plays uh, Mike in this film is bitter yes. <laughs> about the fact that he was not allowed to be included in the second one. Is There's, he in the, the later one? He is. Oh, they brought okay. him back. Good. They brought him back. And, you know, unfortunately Mr. Scrim has, has passed, but... Uh, they filmed a fifth movie, and it, the the filming is complete. You know, it's it's just in post production, and that was you know my selfish thought when I heard that uh, Angus Scrim had died. I thought, well, at least they finished Ravager. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad, and it is selfish, but I really am glad that we're going to get the opportunity to see him on screen. And that was a total diversion. But my point was, <laughs> the you know as as much as they had to work with what they had to work with with editing throughout the rest of the franchise, the continuity is really really good and and, i mean it's it's a a good continuing story that doesn't feel forced i'm a fan well they're setting up an interesting world and i don't think it was a conscious world building at least initially i'm sure coscarelli wasn't even conceiving the fact that there could be multiple sequels after this but the fact that it could then hold up is really grounded in the world that's built in the first film just being so unique and so different that you could go a lot of different ways with it. Right, and and that may be, you know, actually, because so little is explained here in this film, that really opens things well, right up. Like, for example, so eventually Mike comes back um, to kind of investigate the mausoleum, and uh, he breaks in, he busts in a window, he goes in, he's almost discovered by somebody who I guess is like... An employee of the mausoleum or something? Yeah, I couldn't really tell what it was. Character comes and goes. He hides in a coffin, but then he, he gets out and he kind of hears these weird things uh, going on, but you never really see anything. And then you hear this sound, which ends up being the sound of the orbs flying around. And the guy who had almost caught him before does catch him, gets him in a chokehold. He's trying to fight. But then one of these flying orbs comes around the corner and a big, like, spiky thing comes out of it and it impales itself in that guy's head. Like his forehead. Right, his forehead and then like a drill comes out and like drills into his forehead and the blood is gushing out. It's the only real gore in this whole film. Yeah. A couple people get stabbed but it's not, it's like an old school Hollywood stab. But yeah, it's interesting the combination of this creepy old school mausoleum. You're getting the sense that we're involving the dead and we're involving death in kind of an old school way, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, like a creepy old universal film. Yeah. You know? But here is this modern, very polished sphere coming through, drilling into his head, and then very clinically squirting 
the blood out of the back in right. just a very steady stream mm-hmm. as though we're performing some sort of surgical procedure. It's yeah, creepy. It is creepy. And uh, Mike falls to the floor and uh, the guy who died falls to the floor too and wets himself. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's funny. Like post-mortem the, wetting Post-mortem, himself. right. Um, <laughs> it's fun. The film was originally rated X and, and that was one of the reasons w- because the guy wet himself after he got killed. Really? Yeah. I have um, no idea. It was a different um, time. Craig. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm sitting watching this thinking, really? my gosh think how far we've come with what they can get away with showing i mean this is tame i, oh. I feel like today this would be rated pg pg-13 of course i don't see where you get an x out of this i have no all. idea there's not even thematically right does it require an x. and i guess i think it was coscarelli just called in a favor he, he knew somebody on the ratings board and said oh. can you help me out and they wow. were like sure and so he didn't have to end up cutting anything they just bopped it back down to the r well it was kind of unnecessary for him to wet himself i mean he, right but you've already shot the footage it's not like he could reach you right sure right but anyway so then mike gets up and uh this was i don't know if it was intentionally funny or not but uh, mike gets up and he kind of starts walking away and here comes the tall man around uh, <laughs> the corner and mike just what does he say he's like um oh shit <laughs> it is the most honest piece of dialogue yeah, yeah. in this whole film. You've seen horror movies where people react in certain ways. This is the way you would really react. <laughs> totally, totally. And they kind of start walking towards one another, and then Mike hightails it out of there. Um, but he, before he gets out... And, and we've seen a glimpse of these things before. They're like these little, oh gosh, what would you call them? Dwarves, I guess? Yeah, they look like Ewoks or or what are they, the Jawas <laughs> Yeah, Star Wars? I don't remember what they were called, but those little short robed guys in Star Wars that were also parodied in... Uh, yeah, I think they're the Jawas, the ones who um, who are scavenging at right. the very beginning, who take the droids in. Right, the ones who in Spaceballs, the... You know that? That's right. <laughs> so it looks like those, and, and he gets attacked by a couple of those. And from then on, it's really just a matter of kind of doing some more investigating, getting chased a little bit. Um, in his fleeing from the tall man, he slams a door behind him, and the tall man's fingers get kind smashed in the, in the door. And he's got a big old... Mike has a big buck knife on him, and he slices the fingers off, and I guess he grabs one. Eventually he escapes, he goes home. Right, but the fingers gush like a, like a, a yellow, yellowish ooze. liquid. You're right. expecting blood, you're seeing yellow, and that's one of the first moments where you're just... I mean, the movie's already weird, but that right. just totally throws it off. Right, and I mean, it obviously establishes this guy is not human, it's mm-hmm. something else. Now, Mike has the evidence. He goes home, uh, and he's, he's talking to Jody. <laughs> I love this scene. Uh, and he's like, look, I'll show you. I've got it right here. And he's got this box, um, and he opens it up. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> there's the finger in there wriggling around, and Jody looks at it for a second and goes, okay, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you'd like to happen in every other movie. Right. But usually the evidence disappears. Right. Here's the actual wriggling figure in the box. Like, this. And really from there, you know, it's it's kind of just some back and forth. Jody, yeah. Jody goes and investigates. He gets attacked by the little dwarf people. Um, he comes back home. Somehow, well, no, uh, he escapes out of the house, but the tall man follows him in the hearse. Then uh, Reggie comes after him in the hearse. Mike, Mike. Mike, sorry. Mike, Mike comes after him. In the hearse. And in, then they have like a car chase. The, nobody's the driving the car, supposedly. It appears. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> Jody goes all badass and like stands up in the sunroof and is like <laughs> shooting <laughs> shotgun at the at the car and he eventually gets the car to crash and when they find it it was being driven by somebody but it was one of those dwarfs which is why they couldn't see and uh the dwarf has been entirely impaled but they pull back his robe his robe his hood. hood and his face is the face of tommy their friend who had died and so we kind of realize here, and it's kind of explained a little bit further, that the tall man, whoever he is and for whatever purpose, is harvesting dead people to do his bidding. And then apparently somehow he shrinks, shrinks them, them down. <laughs> kind of crushes them more than shrinks them because their head's the same size, right. but they're sort of midgetized. Right. And like they, they pull, uh, Reggie just shows up um, and, and they pull... Um, in his ice cream truck. In his ice cream truck. Jody and Reggie pull Tommy out of there and Reggie comments, well, he's only three feet tall, but he still must weigh 200 pounds. And this is uh, kind of explained later when the origins of the tall man are somewhat explained. I mean, it's never fully explained, no. but apparently he's from a different planet. And the reason that he has to shrink them 
down is so that um, I guess their body mass Something will be about the gravity. right. Their body mass will be more condensed, <laughs> so the gravity won't affect them as much. And wherever it is, it, it's really hot there. But yeah. you know, that comes up later. But then you know, there's the thing with Tina at the antique store. Yeah, even though Michael has pretty much bailed out his brother Jody in the two or three times that Jody's gone out and insisted that Mike stay home, Mike, doing what Mike does, follows Jody and either with the car or whatever bails him out, Mike, Jody still insists this last time that Mike really stay at the antique store with Susie and Sally, which... Susie and Sally. Come right, on. I, I mean, come on, right? Anyway. And it really seems like a totally inconsequential scene. And really it <sighs> is, except for when he's in that antique store, he finds a photograph. And I guess we're supposed to think that the photograph kind of comes to life. You know, that was where I was a little confused because I thought a stronger scene would have been that he would have found the photograph that's obviously an old antique photograph that nevertheless shows the tall man... Mm-hmm. Back in the day, as he was, as he is now, right uh, in front of the same mausoleum, but like with uh, with a horse drawn hearse, hearse. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh wow, that would be this creepy realization that this tall man's clearly out of this world because he's lived this long. But then the picture kind of comes to life in front of him. The tall man it zooms in on the tall man. The tall man looks at him for a moment and then turns back. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be in his mind or if that was actually the photograph, like a Harry Potter right, moving right, photograph right. thing that happened for his benefit. Yeah, I, I really don't know. And the scene, I mean, you get the sense that they're trying to establish that this guy has been around for a long time. But beyond that, it doesn't really seem to serve a lot of purpose. No. However, they return to it later on in the series and they kind of explain the origins of not necessarily where the tall man came from, but why he looks like the tall man. Oh, interesting. Um, there, I guess there was um, a minister named Jebediah something. I'm not going to remember what it was. <laughs> and and he was, you know, the the what the tall man looks like is that guy. And this guy, you know, dealt with death a lot. And so he kind of became interested in, gosh, I don't know, parapsychology or something. And he built a machine that ended up being kind of a cross dimensional transport machine. And he went into it and I guess ended up on the planet of whatever the tall man is presumably was killed by the tall tall man man. and the tall man took his form. Form. Oh, okay. That makes Um, sense. So you get that history. I think that's in part three. I don't remember. It's It's been so long since I've seen him, but um, again, it's just one of those little things. And and I'm sure they didn't have any of that planned, but there was that moment that they could draw from later down the line and they utilized it. And I, I think that's really cool. That's good. Well, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's definitely a weird moment. Susie and Sally, he, he says, I got to get home. I got to get home. And so they drive, him home and they run across Reggie's ice cream truck which is on its side in the middle of the road and he says you girls wait here I'm gonna go and expect this and he goes and he sees that indeed Reggie is gone body is gone mm-hmm. from the truck but there are still these noises happening he runs to the car and says we've got to get out of here now and these dwarf creatures attack them. Right. End up dragging the girls out of the car. No, the girls stay in the car. The girl, I, oh, yeah. no, you're right. They end up taking off. Right. Uh, and Reggie ends up uh, getting knocked out the back window, right? <laughs> you're, by, by the end of this podcast, you're going to know that that kid's name is Mike. Thank I, you. <laughs> I don't know why I want to keep calling him. Is, his, is the actor's name Reggie? I don't think so. I don't so. know. I, the Reggie is Mike. Re- ball, the Reggie is the bald. Mike is the kid. Right. Mike. All right. Mike is with the girls. Mike was with the... Anyway, Mike... Mike gets thrown out the back window of this uh, car and into the street. It's an interesting moment where he's laying in the street and unconscious, and then you see a shot of Jody, almost like he has the the spidery spidey sense. Yeah, that like it's some kind of psychic connection or something. It's yeah, weird. and then there's a shot of Mike again, and then there's a shot of Jody, and, and then each a... shot is closer and closer on their faces. It's yeah, weird. and then <clears throat> Jody, uh, I'm sorry, and then Mike wakes up. And runs home. It's convenient that he could just run home. Right. It's, supposedly he was besieged by these guys who must be way more interested in the girls and dispersed Apparently. into the woods. But uh, he comes home and there they are. And again, it, it, it's basically <laughs> time for the final showdown. But uh, as every Always. other time in the movie, Jody says, you're not coming, you have to stay here. And he picks him up. 
picks him up, takes him up to his room, locks him in his room, like jams a, uh, a screwdriver in the door so he can't get out. And then it's it's funny. Uh, uh, Mike devises a way to get out. And I feel like you referenced this in I some other I have referenced pod- this in a previous <clears throat> podcast because let me tell you, this scene, maybe I'm embarrassed to say it after watching it now, but this scene up until this moment just impressed the heck out of me. <laughs> and maybe it still does to a certain extent because you'll often have these MacGyver moments in a movie where a character grabs all these detritus that's around the room and quickly assembles something. But it's usually played like they've done this before or they know what they're doing or a quick glance around the room and they know immediately what to do. Right. What I like about this scene is it plays to me as fairly realistic. It takes its time. The kid tries the door. He can't get out the door. He's really ticked off. He sits down at his desk in frustration. He sobs a bit. He sort of stops sobbing and is just sort of staring at the wall, trying to decide what to do. And to my mind, you can really see him clearly putting the pieces in place. He pulls the shotgun shell out of his uh, shirt pocket. Right. They've been armed for a while now. That's right. Yeah, there's been a lot of the shotgun (laughs) happening. And he's just playing with it. And as he's playing with it, it's like he gets an idea... And he sees that the hammer is there on the desk. And and the hammer can be on the desk because sure. we know he's he's mechanically minded. Right. And that's actually, again, another case of where Coscarelli at least did a really good job in the script of forecasting that this guy is mechanically True. minded. You know, he works on cars and things, even mm-hmm. though he's only 13. Right. And he pulls a pin off the wall and he jams it and he has trouble, mm-hmm. you know, jamming it into the shotgun shell. But he gets it and he ends up taping it around... I just liked that scene. I liked watching an I- the genesis of an idea and somebody slowly try to put it together in a kind of clumsy way like you and I might do at home. Right. Except in this case, it works. He slams the hammer with the shotgun shell attached to the end to the door, blasts a hole in it so he can reach through and open the door. Right. Right. I don't know, man. I, I just like that scene. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a cool scene. I mean, it's uh, he he's innovative. It, it seems incredibly dangerous. I don't know how he. I don't know how he came out of that without some buckshot in his yeah. groin or something. But um, it works, and he gets out, and then he heads. Oh no, uh, uh, Jody is headed to the mausoleum. But when Mike opens his front door, there stands the, the tall, tall man. man, like he was there all along waiting for him. And right. that's a good unexpected moment, right? And the tall man grabs him, lifts him up in the air, throws him in the back of the hearse. Oh, and when he does that, there's another great moment, which, again, you don't see in a lot of movies. Is the tall man's lifting him up by just by his... Like the scruff of his... Scruff of his jacket. Yeah. <clears throat> and Jody's kicking, and he's kicking for a while until the tall man lifts him about three or four feet higher. When Jody... You can just see the look on his face like... This is pointless. Right. Like, I might as well not kick because this guy, you know, is lifting me, me in the air. Another great moment that is so understated that may have been a happy accident, but I absolutely love it. Right. He The the tall man throws him in the back of the hearse and they head off presumably towards the mausoleum. But Mike's packing heat, so he pulls out his uh, pistol. Did like, I call like, him Jody? I'm sorry. I don't I know. I you called him Jody about 15 They're times. used to it by now, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't know what he's talking about, folks. So anyway, he's got this, it's like a like a Glock or something. It's like this huge gun. He shoots out the back window, and then he kind of shoots down into the wheel well, and the tire explodes. He jumps out the back, and the car crashes and is just immediately, it explodes, like engulfed <laughs> in flames. So, you know, it would be reasonable to think that the tall man is dead, but of course this is a horror movie, and he's yeah. an alien, so uh, he's not. But they but, believe he's dead. Right. But then everybody somehow kind of magically <laughs> convenes at the mausoleum. Like, uh, Mike goes there and finds Jody there, and then Reggie just pops up. Well, that's the door. Hey, man, I don't know. Hey! Oh. Oh. Hi, guys. Reg? He ain't dead. <laughs> No, and I ain't three foot two yet either. Like, like <laughs> here hey guys, I here I am. And, and they're like, oh, nice to see you. And they go to open the door together. The door. The, mm-hmm. the mysterious door. And inside the door, and again, the first time I saw this movie blew me away. Because you were absolutely not expecting a pure white room with these two metal tongs sticking out of the ground. This vibrating sound happening. Yeah, and the sound effect was really cool there. It really was. And then just stacks of industrial-looking... Barrels, pods. Yeah, Yeah, with, like, 
must be a little window on the front. It looks like little it. Little dark windows on the front. That, in a movie that's always been kind of throwing strange things at you, at least you have the sense that you're dealing more with the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And then at this moment, okay, uh, it's sci-fi now. Right. It right? is very sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And like Todd said, there are these two big metal posts. They stand, I would guess, maybe three, three and a half feet high, About something like that. High, yeah. yeah, they're sticking up out of the ground, and uh, Mike just happens to be standing by them. And as he turns, his hand just kind of brushes through and disappears. In and between he, them. In between them. And so he, he pulls it back out, and everything's fine. Puts it back in, pulls it back out, everything's fine. He has kind of a mental flashback, you know, uh, to don't fear, you know, that whole box thing from earlier. He does that, his hand a couple times, and then it seems like he kind of stumbles and falls through. And maybe gets sucked in a little bit. Maybe it's a hard little to bit. Tell. And then this is such a bizarre scene. <laughs> um, you go to, you know, it. he kind of like it seems like he's kind of falling through some red atmosphere and then he can see below him, I guess what is supposed to be the tall man's home planet. It's like this big desert. The sky is really saturated in red and those pods have like crashed down there and the little dwarf guys are coming out of them and like marching off into the horizon. And, and luckily for, for Mike, his brother Jody had seen him fall, had grabbed his, uh, his waistband yeah, yeah. And, and pulls him back in. And <laughs> Mike's power of deduction <laughs> is supreme. T- right. Tells him, oh. Slaves. They're using them for slaves. The dwarves. And they gotta crush them because of the gravity. I know this from the two seconds that I was was in there. Um, But even though we only get a glance of that home planet, it's really kind of cool looking. It's uh, very different visually than anything else that we've seen so far. Uh, Honestly, it's impressive with the budget that they worked with, that they were able to get some visuals like that in this film, quite honestly. Um, And then then what happens? I mean, they... I mean, and then they... they... The lights go out. Yeah, that's odd. For an unexplained reason. Mm -hmm. and um, It's kind of a cop-out, really, I think. Mike lights his bick... And um, there's a, one of those one of those dwarf creatures in front of him again in the hood. Yeah, and Jody has disappeared. Jody reappears outside. I mean, I'm not talking like he evaporates and then re you know it's materializes. Just he's there again. He's just outside. Uh, we don't know how he got there. Um, and they're running uh, away. Jody's encountering that girl who you know we remember from the beginning, the lady in lavender who killed the first guy in the first scene. Yeah, and we've neglected to mention in an earlier scene in the film kind of gets seduced by him. Him and almost pulls him in as well. And uh, in the meantime, Reggie is inside the room and he gets the same sort of flashback to his tuning fork mm-hmm. and gets the idea of putting both hands on those vibrating posts. Right, to and, stop the vibrations. And when he stops that vibration, that's sort of, I guess, interrupting the key or the flow or the whatever. Yeah, it's like turning off the machine or something. I I don't know. It causes uh, mass chaos. What basically happens is all of these big... Uh, barrels start getting sucked in. Right. He starts getting sucked the in. The portal becomes a vacuum. The, <clears throat> the wind kicks up outside, and uh, the tall man, at least momentarily anyway, who was disguised as the lady... Uh, right, of, yeah. You, 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 you think fig- that... Right. Well, <clears throat> and then, so, he, he turns it off, and it turns into a vacuum. He gets out, but as soon as he gets out, he's confronted by that lady in purple, mm, that's right. um, who stabs him in the chest, and then you see they do that close-up thing of her face again... And it kind of flashes in and out between her and the tall man, and eventually it's just the tall man. Mm-hmm. So you get the sense that they are one and the same, that he's able to take on different forms yeah. uh, if he wants to. He <clears throat> stands over the body of Reggie, and Reggie is is deceased, clearly. Seemingly. The other two, you know, uh, Mike tries to go and save Reggie, but Jody's like, no, don't. he's dead, let's get out of here. And as they start to leave, even the house itself... Takes on a starts to shimmer, starts to flicker a little bit. You almost think it's maybe getting sucked into the portal as well. It's, right. it's almost like the end of Poltergeist in a way, you know, right. the way it looks. Yeah. Although it never completes that action. Mm-mm. 
and Mike and no. Jody go home. They go home, and the plan is they know of this mine shaft a thousand feet deep. Oh, this is the <laughs> weirdest thing, and um, <laughs> totally out of character. Jody says, "Mike, you stay here at home and, and get things ready, and <laughs> find I, some ammo. Right, find some ammo, and I'm gonna go take all the warning signs down for this thing, and then we're gonna we're gonna lead the tall man there. Well, Mike is not home by himself for more than thirty seconds before the tall man shows up, busts through a window, is is chasing him around. Um, Mike, it's a really lousy chasing, by the way. It is. He busts through the window, and then the next shot is that uh, Mike is quietly, quietly sneaking through a hallway, looking for him. Although, then the tall man's reveal when the back door sort of blows open and he stands there. That's when he says, "Boy." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so, so Mike runs out, and he's running down the road, presumably towards this mine shaft, which I guess is just like a block away from their house. Um, <laughs> That's really bad. And uh, the the tall man is is chasing him in pursuit, and I don't remember if he actually says these or if it's no. just kind of a voiceover. And I thought that was really nice too. It was sort of an echo in his head, almost like he's psychically connecting with him, or it's just an artistic way of showing the passage of time. But yeah, the, the tall man says. You play a good game, boy, but the game is over, and now you die. <clears throat> um, Mike runs <laughs> to this mine shaft, leaps over. Now it. wait a minute! Before he gets to the mine shaft, he's running through the woods, and he encounters all these perils. He uh, suddenly stumbles into oh, a right. sort of a mud pit that he can't get his feet out of, and these hands come out of it and try to grab him, but he remembers he can't fear, and so right. he gets out of that, and then. He's the lavender goes, lady shows up. And, but he's got his knife, and he kind of waves it in front of him, and then he goes... There was one other thing, I don't remember what, but it was this weird, almost Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, ending kind of thing with Nancy trying to get up the stairs. Right, yes. Uh, I guess the idea might be that the tall man is materializing these pseudo-non-existent dangers in front of him to yeah. slow him down. Yeah, I think so. And, and that's where his lesson, you know, fear is the killer. Mm. Um, <clears throat> he's able to kind of get himself out of these things. And he runs to the mine shaft. <laughs> he leaps over it because apparently thousand foot deep mine shafts are only about the two or three screen. feet wide. <laughs> he leaps over it. The tall man, uh, of course, doesn't know it's there. So he falls in. He doesn't fall straight down immediately. He kind of grabs on, grabs Mike's foot and is kind of pulling him. But Mike gets away. And Jody was ready. <clears throat> with the well-placed boulders. Boulders <laughs> that he he rolls like, I don't know, I would say three or four decent-sized rocks and one great big giant boulder down, and they immediately fill this thousand-foot-deep <laughs> mine shaft. <laughs> Which makes you wonder why the local authorities hadn't done that a long exactly. time ago. And then you see Jody up at the top of the hill, and he's backlit, and he kind of throws his <laughs> hands up in celebration. And then we cut immediately to a fireplace scene, and I swear that I do not remember this ending at all. And it's so strange, and I really don't know how to explain it. It's an odd choice in a very odd movie. And again, like I said earlier, if you had not been beset by so much oddness coming to it, and so many things that you could have interpreted as dream sequences or whatever you would feel cheated, I think, at this point. There's a fireplace, and it zooms out, and it's Jody finishing telling the no, story. No, it's, it's I mean, Mike. It's Michael finishing telling the story to Reggie. So now Reggie's alive, and you're thinking, right. what's the deal? And it sort of turns out that jo that Mike has been telling the story, this whole story to Reggie about this very vivid dream that he had. And that Jody, they that two weeks earlier they buried Jody from a, a car accident. Well, and it's really it's I, it's confusing because it seems like Mike is telling it as though he believes it happened, and Reggie keeps saying no, it was just a mm -hmm. dream. That tall man didn't take uh, Jody; he died in a car accident. And you know, I'm I'm really sorry, but you're going to be okay. And um, I know that you know nobody will replace Jody for you, but I'm going to. I'm sure, sure going to try. <laughs> right? He says, you know, why don't you go upstairs and and uh, get some rest or whatever. So apparently we're we're meant to believe that this whole entire movie was a dream. Um, well, more than that, though, I think 
And I think in this way, it's a little bit of a genius ending, even though I'm not sure it's executed well. It almost seems like not just a dream, but it's Mike's way of dealing Coping. with his brother's death. Mm-hmm. Because and he'd already lost his parents, so to lose his brother too would be very traumatic. Which seems to be the one thing he was fe- afraid of, you know, was losing his brother, whether he ran off or whether he sent him to some school, or in this case, whether he died. And the whole film really centers around these ideas of death and the grave and loss loss and so it's fitting in a way uh but you're right you don't know how to interpret it is it okay so let's get back to reality is it really a dream or is it uh another one of the tall man's tricks right and so then mike goes upstairs to his room and he closes his door and as the door uh swings closed of course there's a mirror on the other side of it and in the mirror there stands the tall man and does he boy again i don't remember um but he reaches through the glass grabs mike pulls him through the glass and that's the end which is an interesting throwback to a number of other scenes where people are grabbed by hands there's the early on in the film mike himself has a dream where he's in bed mm-hmm. and suddenly the tall man appears above him and people burst out of the ground and pull him mm-hmm. down then jody himself has a dream where he's sitting in a chair against the wall in the mausoleum and suddenly the tall man appears and then hands break out of one of the things behind him and pull him up. This is number three. You know, this is very reminiscent. It's now uh, Mike himself has had uh, this experience where, you know, the tall man sort of represents death is coming and here are the hands to take you away. Really interesting. Now, if I remember correctly... The sequel retcons the end of the movie. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it changes the end so that just part of it, like the very end, him getting pulled through the mirror, that was a dream. Uh-huh. But the rest of it really happened. And uh, the rest of the series focuses primarily on Mike and Reggie. It really becomes kind of a buddy movie. That's interesting that it would focus on Mike and the friend of his brother instead of him and his brother. I wonder if they just couldn't get the actor back. Yeah, that <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, well, if, if you were to name, I mean, if you were to look at that cast and you were to imagine who's going to go on to a better acting career after this, who would you have chosen? Angus Scrim, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me let me put him out of the picture. Okay. Of the three of the three, who would you have chosen? I have no idea. See, I myself, even though I thought his his ability was poor, I thought that Jody had the more movie star look. Yeah, you know, he was the one who felt like a few more acting lessons and get him with the right director, right. and he'll go on to be a star because he just has that look. And I don't think he's been in much at all since this. I don't think so. I don't think any of them really have, except for these movies, um, at now, least as far as I know. Reggie, Reggie's been in a number of horror films since this. See, and maybe I recognize him from things, but mm-hmm. he's so reminiscent of Clint Howard. He is. Me. He looks. And plus, <laughs> Clint Howard played a killer ice, ice cream, cream man. man. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It looking about the same but no reggie the character the guy who played that has been in a number of horror films mostly horror since then but gotcha. uh, a fair amount of work but he's the only one he and angus scrim are the only right, ones right and i don't think angus really left the horror genre N- not very much you know i haven't really seen him in a lot except for this there was gosh it's been a long time ago now but there was i think it was on hbo or showtime masters of horror do you remember that series yes uh-huh. where different directors would just kind of do an hour thing every week or so he was in one of those called something like incident on and off uh, mountain road or something like that okay. um and uh I, I remember him from that but really this is what i remember him from and it's it's funny because he is so sinister uh in the movie and he plays such a good bad guy and just the image of him is so iconic but when you read about him when you read about what people say about him the people who've worked with him the people who knew him personally apparently he was just one of the most gentle kind genuine people super easy to work with excellent with fans you know he 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 would do horror conventions and whatnot and he was totally willing to meet and visit with his fans pose with them as the character um he'd say boy for anybody who wanted to hear it um he just seemed like such a cool guy and and this this edition the dvd edition that we watched has an introduction with him and he's significantly older i I would guess this was probably 10 or 15 years ago so he looks kind of more like an older grandpa kind of figure and 
he 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 addresses you know the he's introducing <laughs> it talking to the camera and he seems like such like he seems like you would want him to be your grandpa like he, he just seems like this nice gentle person and from every account he was and so I I'm so glad that he has this legacy and that his memory will go on and I think that it will for a really long time well and what he had to say there was really funny too he he mentioned that Don Coscarelli had approached him to be to play an alien in this film. And that was all he was going to tell me about it for the moment. My mind raced with the dramatic possibilities. An eager immigrant from the old country, meeting the struggles, the heartbreaks, but the eventual triumphs in the land of opportunity, America. Would I play an Irishman, a Russian, a Chinese? I'd have to master the appropriate accent. Maybe I'd speak initially in another language. Yo hablo un poquito espanol. Je parle français un peu. Bon pour passata. Net no crop. Of course, it becomes this film, <laughs> which doesn't provide a lot of opportunity for him to do much more than stand there, be menacing, and say, Boy. right, right. But, but he makes the movie. He does. He does. He makes the movie. The for movie sure. wouldn't really have. Uh, I, I doubt the movie would have been much of anything. If I he don't think so it. either. I, I think without the iconic imagery of him and that. VHS cover. Um, <laughs> I don't think that it, it would have stuck around. And, you know, I don't know how people... I think, personally, that if you want to count yourself as a true horror fan, you need to see this movie. Oh, yeah. You can't get away without seeing it. I wonder how a younger generation would receive it. Because the effects are dated. Yeah. Um, the the editing is a little bit clunky. We've already talked about the acting is uh, a little bit subpar. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And again, still, you know, I, I saw it 15 years ago. I watched it again tonight and I still, it's just fun. It's yeah. so unique and creative that I'm so, I'm just about willing to forgive anything. Oh yeah. Because I, I believe that Coscarelli and the people involved in this we're really giving it their all, and they cared about these characters, and they cared about the story, and it shows. And I, I kind of fanboy out over it a little bit. <laughs> you can see the love in it, though. It's yeah. it's very very reminiscent in that way of the Evil Dead. Yes, where you can see that these are a bunch of amateurs really pulling out all the stops and all their resources to make something unique and clever and creative, and you can't help but get wrapped up in that right. as well, right? It's so cool and. Poor Lawrence Rory guy. Uh, he lived a good life to 89. Right. Before he got into film, the guy worked for Capitol Records and wrote liner notes uh, for The Beatles, Frank Sinatra, some of your favorite albums. Yeah. So awesome. you can't say that this guy uh, didn't go out with the bang having lived uh, quite a full life. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, we're wrapping up. Uh, I, I feel like uh, we can't go without saying that he wasn't the only legend we lost this week. We also lost the incomparable David Bowie, who was just the epitome of uh, an artist. As a child of the 80s, just everything about him is iconic to me. You know, what stands out in my mind um, is Labyrinth, because that was such a beloved movie to me when I was a kid. But he wasn't, you know, he, I don't, he was a, an actor in his own right and appeared in many films. I, I don't think he ever appeared in a horror film but uh, i just couldn't let let it go without uh, giving a little shout out to to bowie well thank you again for joining us for another episode of two guys in a chainsaw if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend check us out on itunes or stitcher like us on facebook and join us again next week until then i'm todd i'm craig with two guys in a chainsaw 